G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. This podcast is made available by Vision Christian Media, thanks to the generosity of our supporters. Your donation today means great podcasts like this remain available to help people look to God daily. Please make your donation today at vision.org.au. Today with Jeff Vines, author, pastor, apologist and Bible teacher with a straight-talking message from the Word. None of us keeps our moral code. We fail, so did David. The Bible is not a book about how good people are. It's a book about how forgiving God is. Today with Jeff Vines. Hello and welcome. My name is Bill. Thanks so much for joining me again on Today with Jeff Vines. In this message, we're continuing our series on the life of David, who was a great king, but also far from perfect. Here, Pastor Jeff looks at David's encounter with Bathsheba and explores why and how David could do this. The passage we're in is 2 Samuel chapter 11. Here's Pastor Jeff now. On today with Jeff Vines. Okay, now we're in the series on the life of David. A big one today, let me tell you. It's 2 Samuel chapter 11. Now, I want to tell you, this has been an incredibly frustrating week for me. Very frustrating because the amount of information in these next two chapters, it would take me months to get through it all. And so usually, you know what my attitude is. Pastor Jeff, he knows when you come in here, there's a couple things happening. Number one, you're expecting to get a lot in a short amount of time. You're also very sharp people, so you have no trouble doing that. So usually I think, all right, let's give them a spiritual smorgasbord. We're going to segment this into three opportunities. Even though each one could be a sermon in and of itself, I'm going to deliver all three. But the whole week... And, you know, pastors love this kind of thing. It's like God is saying this to me. It's not audible, but you can feel it. It's like God saying, no, you're not. You're going to slow down. And for those of you who get irritated with my rapid fire, you'll be happy today. (laughs) Because I'm going to slow down. There is too much here. There are three segments. And the first segment that hits every one of us when we read this story is how could David do this? My goodness, I've heard hundreds of messages on this passage, and uh, I've heard it addressed from various angles. Some are are very spiritual, you know, like the stages of sin. First you look, then you lust, and then you act, okay? And and I've heard humorous stories uh, of humorous applications like, be careful how late in the day you walk on the roof of your house, to be careful where you put the jacuzzi, to keep your eye on the creator and off his creation, all that kind of stuff. But for most of us in the room, when we read a story like this, and as we become familiar with it, our question is this, what on earth is going on here? This is David. He's been described as a man after God's own heart, that he wanted more than anything else to know God and know and knew that that only happened in solitude. He's the guy that wrote, as the deer pants for streams of living water, so my soul pants for you, O God. 
Where's the David that as a teenager slays Goliath and then back in the palace gives God all the glory and all the credit to King Saul? Where's the guy that says, I'll dare not offer anything to the Lord that, that, that didn't cost me something? Where's that guy? And then we come to this story and it seems like it's all out of place. How, how could David do this? Well, first of all, exactly what did David do? The Bible says he's on the rooftop. He's walking around and he watches a woman bathing. Interestingly enough, her name is Bathsheba. <laughs> now, that begs the question right away. Why is David walking around on the top of his roof watching a woman take a bath? Well, verse 1 of 2 Samuel 11 says, In the spring, at the time when kings, that's King David, go off to war, David sent Joab. Now, David's going to do a lot of sending in these next two chapters, very little going himself. And my question is, where's the David now that usually leads the armies of Israel? They go out. He's the mighty conqueror, the anointed of God. He protects the children of Israel, pursues God's purposes in the world with a passion. Where's that, David? Why is he sitting home at the palace? He's supposed to be leading the armies out to war. Now, this is one of those little rabbit trails that never make their way into sermons. So I want, this is kind of the thing you miss every week because it always gets cut because of time. But because I'm slowing down, I'm going to give it to you. Isn't it true for you and me that we complain about how busy life is. And there is a fine line about being busy and too busy. But ladies, let me say something about your husbands. Be thankful they're busy. Because if they're not, they have a tendency to gravitate towards sin. Isn't that true about all of us? When we're living our lives for a great purpose, for a great objective, a great goal. I mean, we got something to live for. We're working hard trying to achieve things. But when we have a, a window, we get bored pretty quickly. And isn't it interesting we don't gravitate toward sitting under a tree reading the Bible and praying? You know this happens to pastors too? Oh yeah. I, I very seldom have a window where I'm not really busy. And those of you who retired, you, you got to really listen this weekend. So wake them up next to them and tell them, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. Just a little joke there. I know in my life, I'm very seldom do I have a window where I'm not, I'm not trying to meet the next deadline, accomplish something. But when that window comes, I think, wow, I'm kind of ahead of the game. I've got two or three days here. Well, man, I, I know the next wave will come, but woo. And I, I think I'll play some golf. I think I'll watch some TV. And during that time, it's interesting how I too will go through the channels and I'll allow myself to see something a little bit longer than I should have. And then I'll go to Blockbuster. Man, I haven't seen a good movie. I think I'll get a Bond movie. Or a golf movie. And then I go down the aisle, I see this movie, and it hits me immediately. It's questionable. I should, this looks like a good movie, but should a pastor really be watching that? And then I'm just as good at rationalizing as you are. Maybe I should rent that. I need to do some research on what people are watching so that I can better <laughs> preach to them. Ha ha, you think, I, you think you're the only one that could do that. You see? When we're not busy, we, we have a tendency to gravitate toward that which is wrong. David does that because he's not doing what God called him to do, and he has time to get in trouble. He's watching Bathsheba take a bath. He says that she's beautiful. He sends for her, and then somebody, whoever he is, tries to save David, spare him from what's about to happen, because when David asked who she is in chapter 11, verse 3, the man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. He's saying, David, man, the woman you're asking about someone's daughter. This is someone's wife. 
This is off limits to you. By the way, you guys that are addicted to pornography, I'm just saying, next time you say, well, I can do this, I'm not hurting anyone. Remember, that's somebody's daughter. And you ask yourself the question, if you want the world viewing your daughter this way, okay? David ignores the plea, sleeps with her, and gets her pregnant. All right, here's another rabbit trail that ordinarily we wouldn't go down. And I wrote this in my notes literally yesterday. It's not like Bathsheba's innocent here, right? I mean, what does she do? Call the movers? Let's move the jacuzzi outside. <laughs> because King David's up there. My husband Uriah's away. And if it's true that your home is your castle, maybe she wants a bigger castle. If I can catch the king's eye, maybe I too can live in the castle. That sounds great. I don't see anywhere in the text that Bathsheba resisted the king. Said, no, we shouldn't do this. He calls, she goes. By the way, we're in a different era now. In the last 10 years, I've noticed something happening in American culture. I don't know if it's the first time in the culture, but I noticed that for a long time, most of the stories I heard were about men cheating on their wives. But I'm hearing more and more stories about women leaving their husbands because they think they're trading up. They want a newer and more improved model. And it usually is associated with wealth and affluence. On behalf of all men, let me say something to you women. We all have issues. All of us. And if you trade from one man to another, you're just going to have a whole different set of issues. You need to take the advice of my wife. Find your man and then train a child up in the way he should go. And when he's old, he will not fall from it. You got too much invested in this one. And the lure of excitement and passion might look good now, but in two years, you'll be right back to where you were right now. Let's start all over with this guy. We all have issues. You think you're trading up. You think you're getting more. You're not. John Ortberg tells a story about a rich CEO, business manager, in his, with his wife, pulls up to a service station. Guy comes out, back in the old days when you still had an attendant come out and fill your car up with gas. Now they just charge you quadruple and don't do anything for you. So <laughs> the guy notices that this man pumping the gas is his wife's ex-boyfriend to whom she almost gave her hand in marriage. He's got a big smile on his face. He gets back in the car and says, did you see that, sweetheart? She said, see what? Did you see he was pumping the gas? She said, yeah, I saw Imagine what would have happened had you married him. And she said, without missing a beat, yeah, he would be a CEO and you'd be pumping gas. <laughs> I'm just saying to you, ladies, ladies, man, come on. You're not trading up. Now that's a little rabbit trail. We ordinarily don't go down. The point is Bathsheba is not innocent in this thing. I'm telling you, David ignores the plea, sleeps with her, gets her pregnant. Now at that moment, here's what I want to say to you. You got two options. You can either confess or conceal. If David, right then and there, would have sent for Uriah, brought him to the palace and said, Uriah, I have sinned against God. I have sinned against you. I have sinned against Bathsheba. And whatever the ramifications, I'm ready to face them. I am so sorry. Probably he would have lost some respect, but he could have gained it back in time. Probably he would have lost some of his reputation. Again, it could have been fully restored. And by the way, who is Uriah the Hittite? Do you know who that guy is? Uriah the Hittite is one of the leaders of David's mighty men who risked his life for David while King Saul and his armies were trying to kill David. Uriah spent a lifetime putting himself on the line for King David so that one day he would become the king. That's what makes this so atrocious. David decides rather than to confess it and to minimize the loss, to conceal it, to concoct a plan, to hide, to keep his reputation. And here's the irony, and I want you to hear this. Everything David thought he was protecting by concealing, he lost. 
Not only did he lose that, he lost so much more, so much more than had he simply confessed when it first happened. So what does he do? Now here's the, you got to read the story sometimes. It's a sinister plan. He calls Uriah home. He says, hey, come on for a leave of absence. We know you've been fighting difficulty on the battle. He knows by bringing Uriah home, first thing a man will do when he's been on the battle, fill three or four months, he'll go and visit his wife, spend some time with his wife, right? David knows that's going to happen. Then when Bathsheba announces that she's pregnant, everybody in town's going to say, well, of course she is. Uriah came home for more. Now they're going to have a child together and nobody's even going to suspect a thing until the child grows up and has this uncanny desire to dance naked in the street. Then they might know something. They might know something. That's going to be a long time. So this is David's entire plan, but he does not count on Uriah's character. Look at what happened. Verse 11, Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. David says, no way am I going to visit my wife and have a good meal and spend some time in intimacy. Forget that. My brothers in arms are out sleeping in the open field. Joab, the commander, they're risking their lives for the nation of Israel. They could be attacked at any moment. I am not going to enjoy the pleasures of home. If I'm here, I'm here, but I'm going to sleep at David's door. And that's what he does. He sleeps at David's door. This, oh, David's furious. So he has to go to plan B. Plan B is, okay, Uriah, I'm going to give you an extra night. You've earned it. One more night before I send you back. And then I'll send you back. Knowing that Uriah sleeps at David's door, David invites him in for a little bit of party time and gets him drunk. Because David believes this. Hey, if I can get Uriah intoxicated, he'll forget all about character and integrity. And he'll go home to his wife because the, the pull of the flesh is strong. Uriah does get drunk, but he still refuses to go home. In fact, he goes down and sleeps in the servants' quarters at the palace. David now is furious. Now you think about it. You know what this means? It means Uriah has more character drunk than David does sober. <laughs> so what does David do? Gets a letter, sends it to Joab, the commander. And in the letter, it's about Uriah's death. So he has Uriah deliver his own death warrant to Joab. Nice guy. And here's what the letter says. Go back out to battle and send Uriah to the front lines. Now, Uriah's thinking, why am I being sent to the front lines? I mean, I'm usually a commander of hundreds. I mean, I'm going to the front. I did this when I was younger. I'm older now. Don't like the front. Get me away from the front, but I'm at the front. He's at the front. And then there's a sign. Obviously, we don't know what it is, where Joab would give those who were supposed to protect Uriah to withdraw. So Uriah's there fighting on the front lines and all of a sudden he sees everybody withdrawing, but he didn't get the sign and he's a brave man. So he's going to hold his ground. He holds his ground and an archer sends an arrow through Uriah and he dies. Now, that's a, what makes it so bad again is that David is king largely due to Uriah's willingness to risk his life. Now you think about, what does David do then? He covets the man's wife, commits adultery with the man's wife, murders the man, lies to cover it up. Half the Ten Commandments. Half the Ten Commandments in one awful enterprise. This coming from a man who wrote Psalm 48. I delight to do the will of God. Your law is written on my heart. The man who wrote that and the man who meant that did this. And again, I want to tell you, if you're here for the first time and you're still a seeker and you're saying, you see that right there is why I don't believe in Christianity. You're all a bunch of hypocrites. And I say to you, yes, we are. And that's why you're going to fit right in. <laughs> 
Because none of us keeps our moral code, no matter what it is. We try, we want to, but we fail. So did David and so do you. Bible is not a book about how good people are. It's a book about how forgiving God is. Okay? Now, here's the question. How could David do this? As soon as you and I ask that question, our slip is showing. We reveal something about ourselves. Do you remember? I think it was two Christmases ago, Christmas Eve. My daughter and I are going home on Grand Avenue over to West Covina. Rescue squad, police cars everywhere. The man goes into a home in Covina. It had been an angered and a bitter divorce. Shows up at the home of his in-laws. A little eight-year-old girl answers the door because he's dressed up like Santa Claus and he empties his gun in her face. He goes into the house and kills nine more people, then sets the house on fire. Now, here's what amazed me about that story. All week, I read the newspaper reports and listened to the commissioner And everybody asked this question, what happened that made him capable of such an atrocity? And the assumption all week by the media and by many sane people was this, a sane person would never commit such an atrocity. He must have been really sick, some chemical imbalance, because the assumption is, I'm not capable of that. I would never do that. And as soon as you say that, you've taken one ginormous step toward doing it. Do you know why? Because the seed of atrocities reside in every single one of us. The capability of doing something, the worst possible deed you can imagine is in every single one of us. And what I'm saying to you, you give that seed that is in you and me enough water, the right time and the right place, and you'll do something. And even yourself, you'll look back and think, I can't believe I did that. Yes, it might be true. You're a Christian. You're following Jesus. And you have a passion to do the good, to be righteous. That the Holy Spirit not only changes what you do, but what you want to do. You're set on a course. You want to live a godly life. That may be true, but it doesn't make any less true the fact that there are seeds of bitterness and anger and hatred and envy and strife and things that are growing down inside. You remember what happened during World War I? Most of the British and American leaders, including FDR, when they heard first about the Holocaust... That in Germany, there were gas ovens, human experience, firing squads, executions of innocent men, women, and children, all the rest. They didn't believe the reports. That's why they got involved in the war too late. They didn't believe it. FDR was asked, why couldn't you believe it? And he simply said, I just didn't believe that the Germans would be capable of such atrocities. They said, why? He said, because I couldn't believe that the same civilization that gave us Bach and Mozart could commit genocide. You see the arrogance? How could such an advanced society be capable of this? That's why I'm always reminded of the preacher, D.L. Moody, who was on an airplane seated beside a guidance counselor. And he asked the guidance counselor, the old preacher did, tell me if you could tell high school students today one thing, what would be the one thing you would tell them? And she said, well, that's easy. I would tell them, make sure you get a good education. And D.L. Moody, without missing a beat, said, well, you know, that's interesting. My experience has been, if you take a man who is stealing railway ties from the railroad track and give him an education, at the end of it, he will steal the whole railroad track. Giving somebody an education doesn't take away the reality of the seeds that grow in all our lives. It just makes us more capable to express our sin in a high-tech fashion. You got it? Like in Rwanda, when I talk to people about the genocide that was committed, a part of them will say, I can't believe they did that. Another part will say this, well, that happens and that's Africa. That's a barbaric civilization and that's what they do to each other. We in the West would never treat each other that way. Isn't that interesting? No. The answer is, no, we treat each other that way. Our barbaric activity is high tech. 
It's just more advanced because we're more educated. Yeah. Listen, the seeds of atrocities you could never imagine reside in you and me. So I ask you to look at your life. Do you see self-pity? Why don't I have what everybody else has? Is it sitting, festering, and boiling? Resentment, envy, entitlement, narcissism, anger at God because he didn't give you something? Jealousy about that person at the office who seems to get all the breaks and you don't? They get all the attention? Hate, jealousy, is it growing? Pride, self-centeredness? And the big one, the big seed that can explode, unforgiveness. Somebody hurts you, somebody wounded you, and you dream about getting them back. And that seed, I'm telling you, is growing. And if you don't deal with it now, if you put that seed in the right situation, the right soil, and it gets watered properly, it will begin to grow. And in the right set of circumstances, you and I are capable of doing things we never thought we would do. We are capable of committing atrocities. I'm asking you, what seed is in you right now? What's there that you know as I'm talking is out of control? the thirst for more and more stuff, then you'll be able to do something that gets you what you want that you never thought you'd do. Plenty of people in Enron right now in prison that never thought they'd do what they did. It's in all of us, folks. When I go to Africa, I love to tell simple stories because they love simple stories. Then you can bring home the point. My favorite simple story, and I think their favorite story that I tell every year I go. It's just like here. I tell the same jokes over and over. And as long as you keep laughing, I'm going to tell them. And so, so it's the guy who sits under the tree and he tells God, I think, God, that your sense of proportion is all out of whack. I'll look out in the field and I see small plants and big watermelons, small or big tree and little acorns. God, this is out of whack. Small plant, big watermelon, big plant, small little acorn. About that time, acorn falls out of the tree, hits him in the head. What does he say? Thank God that wasn't a watermelon. <laughs> and why does he say it? Well, you think about the acorn. Think about the little acorn. Isn't it true it's a very small seed? But in theory, isn't it true, in theory, that an acorn could produce enough wood, one, to cover the whole world? That seed that's in you, if you don't deal with it now, whatever it is, it will grow and grow and get to the point, and you won't see it coming, folks, that you will explode one day, and from that time, your life will change, and there are some things from which you'll never recover. We need to pause there for today, but that's a good point to think about until we come back to hear the rest of this message. What small seeds of resentment are growing inside you that need dealing with? Next time, we'll hear more on David's encounter with Bathsheba. Join me then. The next question is then, how do I make sure I don't do what David did? If, if the seed in you is, is growing and has the potential to explode, how can you make sure that it doesn't explode and ruin your life? Today with Jeff Vines. For more from Pastor Jeff, head to vision.org.au forward slash Jeff Vines. Today with Jeff Vines. Just another way vision is connecting faith to your life. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.